tumour is often thought of as a kind of chaotic tissue. Cancer cells multiplying without control or reason, wreaking havoc in the body with devastating outcomes. But today, we speak to a remarkable researcher who is charting an atlas through that chaos, using cutting-edge genomic technologies to reveal the intricate inner workings of breast cancer. You're listening to Medical Minds, the podcast that takes you inside the labs at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. I'm your host, Dr. Vivian Richter, and I'm here with Professor Alexander Swarbrick, head of the Tumor Progression Lab at Garvin. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Vivian. It's a pleasure to be here. Alex, before we talk about your research into breast cancer, can you tell us how you were first exposed to science? Yeah, sure. My dad was a geologist, and so... I guess I always had science in the family with him. He would always be bringing rocks and minerals home. My brother was an engineer as well. So, you know, someone else kind of thinking in that quantitative kind of space. So I wouldn't say I was always destined to be a scientist, but there was always lots of science and inquisitive kind of thought around the house. How would you say your dad as a geologist influenced your love for science? So he did a lot of field work when he when I was young, and so he actually took me on some of those trips. I guess this was before satellite imaging became as kind of detailed as it is now, and so he would actually go out into the field and need to pick up chunks of rock and put them in the bag and label the bag, so I was kind of his field hand. But he'd also sometimes bring the, the geology home, which was kind of crazy. So he was a uranium minerals explorer for a time, and so he would sometimes play like find the yellow cake with the Geiger counter. (laughs) And so we'd be running around kind of click, 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 click. Oh, it's in the cupboard, you know, which was great. I'm sure it was perfectly safe as well. (laughs) Literally exposed to science. That honestly sounds like the origin story of a Marvel superhero. (laughs) Did you know at that point that you wanted to get into research? I think so. Yeah, it wasn't I'm not sure it kind of crystallized in my mind exactly what that looked like. I wasn't great at school, so, you know, I guess I hadn't formulated the idea very well, but it seemed like I was pretty predestined to do it. And certainly by the end of high school, I was, you know, I knew that I wanted to go and do a science degree. So what did you end up doing? Yeah, so I enrolled in chemical engineering and industrial chemistry in my first year, which I didn't love. I wasn't really a chemistry prodigy, let's say. And it was also, I think I'd misunderstood what it was about. You know, we had our first field trip to the dog food factory, studying the physics of how the food moves around the pipes in the factory. And I thought, all right, no, this is not really what I thought I was signing up for. I then kind of shifted into a more straight chemistry degree, analytical chemistry mostly. So testing things, detecting the levels of contaminants, that kind of stuff. It still didn't really connect with me, and but I think what really got me was the development of molecular biology and biochemistry. And it was around this time that two massive changes kind of shook the field. The first was the development of PCR, which I think everyone knows the acronym now after COVID, right? Because that's what everyone, that's where your nasal swabs go is for PCR. (laughs) And essentially PCR is polymerase chain reaction. So it's a way to take a really tiny bit of DNA and amplify it up to a huge amplification and lets you then kind of measure it and test it. So that's why we use it for COVID testing to detect a tiny bit of virus in your nostrils. 
but it can also then enable you to do anything and work with any kind of DNA. And the application that really connected with me was the cloning of insulin, which was going on at the same time. Interestingly, by one of the ex-directors of the Garvin Institute, John Shine. And so he was in San Francisco. They were cloning insulin, which really revolutionized the lives of diabetics because it went from needing to extract the insulin from animal cadavers, for example, to being able to synthesize it, make it synthetically. And so to me, that was just so exciting and I didn't look back. So what does a PCR machine actually do? So PCR is actually, like many great discoveries, it's quite elegant and simple. It's comprised of three stages, three steps with three different enzymes. So the first one is you take your DNA that you want to amplify, you heat it up and the two strands of the DNA fall apart because DNA is double-stranded. So you heat it, they start to shake and separate. You then, there's a second step where you add a kind of a, what we would call a primer. I guess it's like a starting point to each of those two strands of DNA. And then the third step is you add in an enzyme that can make new DNA together with all the individual bits that you need, the A, G, T, and C. And that enzyme then essentially starts to assemble the replicate strand of DNA on the two copies that you've separated previously. And so you control that just by cycling temperatures for those three different steps. And so essentially a PCR machine is like a thermal cycler. It just goes through those steps and it does it 30, 40 times every time you double what you started with. So first cycle, you get two times as much, then four times, then eight, then 16 and 32. So you end up with something like a million fold amplification. And But back when I, I guess, first saw PCR in action, instead of being the kind of smooth boxes with a single button on the front that they are now, <laughs> it was you know literally three water baths with this hacked kind of little crane moving tubes between each of them. And it would take about a day to run because they were basically homemade. But nonetheless, it was really kind of intriguing. And today's machines work in essentially the same way. So Alex, what were some of the first projects that you worked on in the lab? So I did my honours in molecular biology at UNSW. And the project I did was to sequence a couple of genes from the Giardia parasite. Some people might remember Giardia from the water contamination scare we had way back. And so the idea was to try to understand different species of Giardia by finding differences in their DNA sequence. And so I was in a fortunate position where I'd previously done some training with a federal government testing lab, which is in Pimble. And I convinced them to buy what was probably one of the first DNA sequences in the country and, to, and for me to work between UNSW and the kind of site in Pimble. And so I got to kind of get this machine in, set it up using PCR to do the sequencing. And, you know, I think in the course of my honors, which was about nine months, I probably sequenced about three genes and read about 800 what we call nucleotides, which is the building block of DNA, the AGCT. So that's three times 800, about 2,400 nucleotides. And I did that, it took me about nine months of absolute grind. But of course, the technology of DNA sequencing is probably the, well, I think certainly has grown faster than any other technology humanity has ever created. So in terms of the scale, growth in scale and decline in cost, we've gone from that project 
you know, 2,400 nucleotides I read probably cost us $20,000. You can wow. now sequence billions of nucleotides in a day for a few thousand dollars. So it's just kind of mind-boggling where things wow. have come just in that period of time. So now you can sequence whole human genomes in the, in the snap of your fingers. So after your honours, where did you embark on a PhD? So I came to Garvin, actually, focusing on hormonal control of breast cancer. Many breast cancers are hormonally controlled by estrogen, by progesterone, and by other hormones as well. And so we were really just beginning to understand how that worked at a molecular level. So again, bringing those tools of molecular biology to try to explain the clinical observations that we've been making for decades and put them into kind of a molecular framework. After your PhD, like many researchers, you went overseas. One of the advantages of medical research is that you can travel. Your qualifications are uh, generally accepted everywhere. And because of the global nature of research, it's the normal thing to do, particularly in Australia. In fact, it's kind of, it's unusual maybe to not go overseas. And so that was a great opportunity. Looked at a few different places to go, interviewed in New York, which was, you know, fantastic interviewed in San Francisco and interviewed in Mexico, which was a bit of a lifestyle choice, but in the end went for San Francisco. And, you know, I'm so glad I did. It was an incredible time. We spent three and a half years there. I was fortunate to go into the lab of a Nobel laureate who was the chancellor of the uni at the time. And it was the lab in which oncogenes were discovered. So the genes that drive cancer, it was his discovery, Mike Bishop with Harold Varmus, where they discovered that, in fact, the genes that make cancers go are actually our own genes, but they get corrupted. So that's what an oncogene is. And so that was a you know, fantastic, amazing environment to work in. University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, really one of the world's greatest research institutes, massive scale compared to where I'd come from. You know, Australian science was still pretty small, not very well resourced. And so that was absolutely mind-blowing to go there. And so I learned so much about research and collaboration and was really, yeah, so lucky to have the chance. And then my wife and I, we had our first child there. And so, yeah, it was time to come back to Sydney. UCSF, that's where John Shine cloned insulin. Yeah, that's right. So it was UCSF, the, the very same place where so much interesting stuff was going on. And it was it was from UCSF and actually around those same discoveries that the Drug company Genentech was also born. So, so much kind of going on in that Bay Area at that time. So, how did you find your way into the lab of a Nobel laureate? Like a lot of kind of branch points in my life, there was a bit of luck involved in this. I saw Mike's recent publications. He seemed to be doing some pretty good research. It was in a city that I'd always wanted to live in, and he looked like a nice guy on the website. You know, that seemed important. And really, it was only when I got there that I realized he was a Nobel laureate, realized he was a chancellor of the university, and I just kind of bumbled my way into this situation. But I guess he could see my commitment and interest. And so, yeah, I think it was just hugely fortunate, a great bit of luck that I kind of followed my nose and ended up in this, in this lab that then really kind of transformed my career. So tell me about that. Tell me about following your nose. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I guess some people, some people's perception of science is that it's a very dry, calculated existence, very quantitative. And of course, that's an absolute pillar of scientific method, right? You have to 
get your data and make it believable and reproducible and reliable. But it's also a creative pursuit. It really is. And the way people kind of achieve that creativity, I guess, is in various ways. And for me, I feel it's sometimes kind of following my intuition. And I don't know what intuition is, but I think it's, you know, I feel like it's your mind in the background integrating a hundred or a thousand little facts or pieces of information that you've collected over your life and turning it into something you don't know how you got there and how it became that, but it makes sense. And I got to say, that's kind of served me pretty well. So in, in addition to, I guess, that very structured process that you need to use to do science, I think there is also quite a fluid, intuitive component. And often that's where where some of the, the best things that I've discovered have come from. Let's talk about some of those discoveries, Alex. What did you do after your postdoc? Well, I spent about three and a half years in San Francisco. And as I mentioned, we had our daughter there. And so that the clock was kind of ticking to get, get back home to the support of our families. During my time in Mike's lab, I'd worked mostly on the function of oncogenes. As I mentioned earlier, these are the genes that get corrupted, that drive cancer. But what we were learning was that a cancer isn't just the product of one oncogene. It takes a series of mutations to become a cancer. You know, if you look at your skin and you have a mole, a mole is actually melanocytes, so skin cells that have acquired one, two, maybe three oncogenic mutations. But that's not enough to become a melanoma. And so I became really interested in, well, what are those second hits, we call them, second like offenses that drive the cell closer and closer to the brink of becoming full-blown cancer? And so moving from studying one oncogene in Mike's lab, I then came back. I was fortunate to get a position back at Garvin. That was partly a consequence of a traveling fellowship I had from the federal government that kind of tried to bring Australians back from overseas. And so I set up then in my lab experiments to understand what we called oncogene cooperation. You know, why is it that when you get the first gene, MYC, is your first oncogenic hit? Why do you often then get a mutation in RAS as the second hit? How do they work together? How does that then affect the behavior of the cancer? Those kind of things. And what technology supported that work? So we were mostly doing work in cell culture and sometimes with animal models, a lot of genetics again, a lot of molecular biology, and essentially kind of introducing these different combinations of oncogenic mutations and looking at the resulting phenotype. But one of the things that frustrated us was that we'd constantly observe, instead of a really predictable homogenous outcome, if that makes sense, all the same you'd get these tumors that were really quite variable. They'd have different appearances under the microscope. They'd be composed of different cells like immune cells and fibroblasts. And it led us to more and more appreciate that we were trying to, you know, trying to simplify human disease, which is wildly complicated. And so, yeah, we were frustrated sometimes by by these experiments. We didn't feel we had the tools to study them appropriately. And again, maybe by luck or um, intuition, a new technology was emerging called single cell genomics that allowed you to do the kind of studies we'd always done, but at the level of the single cell. So previously, genetics and genomics, we needed to take a million cells or a billion cells, mash them all up and collect them, and then study that, just so you had enough material to study. 
And through incredible kind of engineering and biotechnology, people had managed to miniaturize this down to the level of the cell. And this, to us, was revolutionary, and it's actually turned out to be revolutionary. This really was a turning point in biomedical research. And of course, this technology now is very mainstream. And so we jumped on it. We saw that coming, and we were fortunate that Garvin acquired one of the instruments that you need to do this at about that time. The machine was actually designed for a different purpose, but people quickly figured out you could hack it to do this single-cell genomics. And in fact, it was never once used for the purpose it was bought for. <laughs> it was entirely used for the single-cell genomics. And so that was an absolute turning point for us. We recognized the opportunity that that brought, the potential for it, and I really kind of put all my chips on, on single-cell genomics. <laughs> and it's turned out to be really fantastic, the insights it gives us and its ability to address some of those problems that we saw. Alex, you lead the Breast Cancer Cell Atlas. Now, when I think of an atlas, I think of a big reference book that primary school kids might use. Tell us, what does the Breast Cancer Cell Atlas do? Yeah, it's an interesting analogy, isn't it? The kind of using the word atlas. And I think to us, the intention is to generate a map that helps us define the cellular makeup of a tumor. So, you know, a cancer is made of cells. Some of those cells are the cancer cells that get those oncogenic mutations that we talked about earlier. But a lot of the cells in there aren't cancer cells. They're other cell types. They're immune cells. They're fibroblasts, for example, the cells that make collagen and all sorts of other cells mixed in there. And there's this increasing appreciation that a cancer isn't just a random mess of cancer cells dividing and dividing like a bacteria might do, but rather it's kind of a broken tissue. And so just like a normal tissue, like your skin or your eye retina or something, cells are organized into performing particular roles and cells interact with one another. And so there's an increasing awareness that we have to understand all the cells, what we call the ecosystem, the cellular ecosystem of a tumor to properly understand the behavior of a tumor and ultimately predict its behavior. Because that's what we need to be able to do is understand who's going to have a great outcome, who's not going to have a good outcome and how we can intervene in that. And so the Atlas is really the first step in deeply mapping all the cells that make up all the many types of breast cancers that you can see in the community. So tell us about these ecosystems. What do they look like? How do the cells talk to each other? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So cells organize into distinct architectures, you could call it. You could call it a neighborhood. That's another term we use. So they kind of collect around each other. And instead of that being random, as we do this work, we're learning more and more that there are repeating patterns, that this type of fibroblast very frequently is found with this type of immune cell. And not only that, when they're found together, the immune cell has a particular behavior. In one example of work we're doing now, we've found that a certain type of fibroblast that 10 years ago we would have said was a passenger in the cancer, irrelevant to the patient. Now what we know is it's actually secreting molecules from its surface next to these T cells. The T cells take up those molecules and it changes their behavior. And this is important because those T cells are actually the killer cells of the immune system. What they're meant to be doing is going and killing the cancer cells to eradicate your disease. But instead, 
they become inactivated through this interaction with the fibroblasts. So it's almost like a poisoned soil in which these T cells are planted. And so the question then becomes, well, firstly, can we use that as a way to predict patients' disease progression? If we find this, this interaction, can we use that as a way to tailor their treatment? But secondly, can we stop the fibroblast doing this to the T cell? Can we figure out the language of that interaction? What are the molecules that are being produced and block them and thereby wake up the T cell again? Has some of this research already had impact in patients? It has. It's early days and really there's a huge gulf from fundamental research to clinical impact, there's a lot you have to do because we have to get it right. You don't want to start a clinical trial with some half-baked <laughs> idea. And firstly, because, and most importantly, because that can, you know, you're putting a patient potentially at risk of a new treatment that's futile, but also it's massively wasteful and just gets us there more slowly. But there are some great examples, many great examples now, which is really fantastic. We ran one project ourselves a few years ago. We found a different type of fibroblast now, actually, in a subset of these nasty breast cancers called triple negative breast cancers. These tumors are naturally aggressive. They divide quickly. They grow quickly. They invade. They spread through the body. But we also don't have very good treatments for them. Those patients still essentially get surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, like we were doing 50 years ago. And so what we find is that in a subset of those patients, their cancer cells set up this conversation with type of fibroblasts. And in this case, the fibroblasts actually make a fertile soil for the cancer cells to grow. More importantly, the fibroblasts set up a fertile soil for the cancer cells to be more aggressive and more drug resistant. So we proposed, well, what if we could block that signal, that interaction with the fibroblasts, might the cancer cells become more sensitive to chemotherapy? And in experimental models, we could show that to be true. And so we ran a phase one trial. And so a, a clinical trial, they come in different phases. The first one, when you're trying a new treatment, the objective is really to ask, is this safe? Can you give this to people safely? That's the first thing. But at the same time, we were able to ask can we also see any evidence that it's maybe helping? And so we enrolled 12 women with really nasty, aggressive, metastatic triple negative breast cancer. It had already spread to distant organs from their breast. They'd already failed every line of treatment that was available to them. They were really out of options. And so we gave them combination therapy to block this conversation. And I got to digress the name of the molecule that the cancer cells use to signal to the fibroblasts is hedgehog. And this is what happens when you let like biology geeks name genes. <laughs> anyway, so we gave one drug to block hedgehog and another drug was the chemotherapy that these patients were failing to respond to. Now, the most important thing was this was well tolerated. It wasn't particularly toxic, no more than the chemotherapy. But more importantly, three patients showed clinical benefit and one of them actually had a complete response to the drug. Now, these are really early days. It's what we call a single arm trial. We didn't have a comparison group, patients who only got chemotherapy, for example. So it doesn't prove that the combination worked, but it's nonetheless really provocative, really exciting, and gives us reason to now want to progress to further lines of clinical trial to directly test the value, the benefit to patients for this. 
That's incredible. That must be so motivating to see that effect in patients. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, even if it's just one person getting clinical benefit for, I don't know, a few months, we don't really know. But nonetheless, it's an incredible feeling, so motivating, and makes the you know four or five years of slog for all the students and postdocs in the lab worth it. So much has been invested in finding a cure for breast cancer. Do you think we'll get there? I think we already are. I think it depends how you think about it. Whether we'll cure every breast cancer is a pretty massive goal, and I think that's a long way off, to be realistic with you. But at the same time, you know, you can think of an analogy of we're picking off the low-lying fruit in a way. If you think of a tree, and some cancers are easy to treat, they are relatively non-aggressive, and we have incredible treatments for them now. And so we, we cure a majority of patients with breast cancer that come in with a diagnosis. They're cured. They will not die from breast cancer in their lifetime. And gradually, that proportion of people who are cured is increasing year on year on year. And in fact, there have been phenomenal new developments in the last few years that are not just microscopically turning the dial, but really changing things for patients. But I think we need to be realistic that at least in my lifetime, there will be cancers that we can't cure. Exactly why? And it's a multitude of reasons. It's partly probably based on the individual properties of the person who has the disease. We know now that your immune system is an essential component to responding to many therapies, and we're all different in that way. But also, it's probably a lot to do with the features of the cancer itself. The combination of oncogenes, for example, that this cancer has acquired determines its aggressiveness. So I think there are always going to be, at least in the foreseeable future, classes of, of cases that are beyond our reach. But I think what really drives us on is that we are still making really major game-changing insights into how to treat breast cancer. And when I say we, I mean the global breast cancer research community we're nowhere near leveling out. We are, it's not mission accomplished by any means. There are still so many patients in need, but I think so many opportunities for us to change their lives. All right, Alex, we've already learned a lot about you, but it's time we dug a little deeper. It's time for the Fast Five. What do you do in your downtime? Well, I have two kids, two teenage kids. Love to spend time with them when they will agree to spend time with me. Otherwise, <laughs> love seeing my friends play a bit of guitar. I'm not really so inspired by the kind of computer music anymore. Rather, I just torture people with some guitar playing. Lovely. Any favorite tunes that you like to bust out? I like campfire repertoire is kind of what I hit. So I'd say probably Jeff Buckley, Hallelujah, you know, great example. Classic. Yeah. Any secret skills? Oh, love cooking. Couldn't really claim to be fantastic at it. Make an unbelievable salad dressing there. Favorite holiday? Would have to be around the world trip with my wife in our 20s. Went through Central, South America, USA, Europe. Just fantastic. Living on noodles every day. Wonderful. Are you reading anything interesting at the moment? I've just finished All the Light We Cannot See, which is really beautiful book set in World War II story of two kids kind of surviving, but then they find each other in the rubble of Europe. It's really beautiful. Who do you admire? I think my colleagues, Elgin Lim, for example, he's a medical oncologist that I work with. He is just such an energetic, kind, giving person. 
he is super inspiring. Similarly, my colleague Sandra O'Toole, who's a pathologist, she works at RPA. She's an absolute powerhouse, somehow just makes it all work and is kind of kind and funny at the same time. So I'm so lucky to be surrounded by people that I really think are fantastic. Is there anything you're afraid of? Yeah, many things. I'm terrified of spiders. If there's a spider in the house, I run. Thankfully, my wife is like a ninja spider hunter and she'll just catch them, chuck them outside. Do you play any sports? Yes, I love playing tennis. That's my thing. Who's your favorite tennis player? I would have to say Alcaraz, the Spanish player. He is just an absolute phenomenon, has every shot in the book, and he's 19 or something. So, yeah, just, I don't know, you could have got the sense that tennis was would never improve any further past, you know, the, the greats, but he's come along and just changed the game again. Professor Alex Swarbrick, thank you so much for joining us on Medical Minds. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. If you'd like to know more about Alex's research or the work we do at Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Dr. Vivian Richter. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.